Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. And today we've got a genre film aficionado on our hands with writer, producer, actor Lottie Ferris Knowles. That's right. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you guys a little background on Lottie. So Lottie Ferris Knowles has been a lifelong horror fan. Indeed, the second I started looking for guests for the show, Lottie's name came up immediately. Three people were like, you got to have Lottie on. Oh, my God. That's awesome. It happened, My, right? my brand is solid. <laughs> she, she worked it. She's originally from the Bay Area, but lives here in sunny L.A. now. Uh, she's the writer-producer of the feminist horror comedy Chastity Bites, which is on Amazon Prime, mm -hmm. I'm told, and has produced several documentaries with Jeffrey Schwartz, including I Am Divine, mm -hmm. a very big favorite. Oh, yeah. Um, Emmy winning Vito and the upcoming Goddess, the Showgirls Chronicles. Oh, yes, I'm mm -hmm. so excited. She's executive producer on the Black Rose Anthology, which we've actually talked about um, on Who, the Who Shot You podcast. Oh, cool. It's a horror anthology series at CW. Um, it's in development right now, but it will explore quote-unquote, fear through a female lens mm -hmm. with episodes written and directed entirely by women. Yeah. Um, and you can also follow Lottie on Twitter and Instagram at, <laughs> at Lottie Lou Who. That's right. Lottie Lou Who. Just look up Lottie Ferris Nulls and yeah. it'll come up. Okay, so Lottie, <laughs> we're going to be talking today about a movie that I have not actually seen. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll try to take you through it. And you stumped me. No, I mean, like, I, I saw it for this podcast, but I had not seen it before. Oh, okay. So you have watched it. That's no, I'm, great. I'm going in blind, Lottie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, it's called The Legacy. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to give a quick explanation for why you chose this today. Okay. Yeah, you know, I was really trying to think because there were more, I guess, obvious, you know, uh, um, feminist choices that are also faves of mine, like Slumber Party Massacre, Jennifer's Body, mm -hmm. um, even John Carpenter's Halloween or Hammer's The Vampire Lovers. Those are some of my other faves I just have to shout out. But I chose The Legacy because probably no one else is going to pick it, number one. <laughs> and number two, because I want to talk about how that movie specifically, but a couple others like it, really influenced me as a kid in ways that I don't even think the people who made the film intended as sort of a dark feminist flip on the Disney princess fairy tale. Mm -hmm. So we'll discuss... You know, how 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 little Lottie's mind worked with that one. Uh, that's very exciting. <laughs> and um, for for those who um, haven't seen The Legacy, today's episode will give you some spoilers. As I always say, that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch The Legacy first, go mm -hmm. ahead. Okay, you guys are back? Great. Okay, so now let's introduce The Legacy. We're going to give a quick synopsis just to get everyone caught up. Uh, directed by Richard Marcon in 1978, The Legacy stars Catherine Ross and Sam Elliott as an American couple, Maggie and Pete. I love those American names. I know. <laughs> Maggie gets a mysterious job offer for an architectural inter interior design project in England and brings Pete with her. In England, the couple gets in, run off the road by a rich guy's car. The rich guy, Jason Mountolive great name again, mm -hmm. invites them back to his house for tea until their motorcycle can be repaired. 
tea, of course. Mm-hmm. It's, it's England. It's British. But the second they get to the house, things get weird. A bunch of house guests start showing up, including a former Nazi, a rock star who's played by Roger Daltrey, by the way, and a world-class swimmer. And all seem to owe something to the mysterious Mount Olive. Things escalate really quickly. Mount Olive is suddenly old and on his deathbed, and one of the six people in the house <laughs> will inherit something from this old man, his quote-unquote legacy. Six have come to claim his inheritance. Five discover the lifeless body. Four watch in horror as another dies. Then there were three. Then two. But only one can receive the legacy. Um, Maggie and Pete are freaked out and try to escape after people start dying weird deaths, but there's no way out. They're stuck awaiting their fate. Okay. That's a gist of it. Yeah. Um, Before we even start, though, I need to know if you're a fan of Return of the Jedi. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's the greatest of the Star Wars movies, but, you know, I do like it. I'm actually kind of a Return of the Jedi defender a little bit. So, but yeah, it's funny because was that that was one of Richard Marquand's other directing credits? Yeah, it yeah. Was, it was after he had just done the Legacy. The Legacy was his first not TV mm-hmm. feature film, and then Eye of the Needle, I believe, was after that. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of remember that movie as being a cool thriller. Yeah, back in the day, I haven't seen that in a long time though. He he got the job of uh, the Return of the Jedi um, just from showing the rough cut of Eye of the Needle. To uh, George Lucas. Wow, right? That's amazing. That's See, I don't, I don't know that much about uh, Mark Hand. I know more about the the main writer. And I hope I'm, I'm, I think that this is correct. Jimmy Sangster. It is. Yes. yes, he wrote a lot of stuff for Hammer, and Hammer was a huge influence on me also growing up and to this day. And he also wrote a couple of the quote unquote hagsploitation movies with Betty Davis, mm-hmm. The Anniversary, and The Nanny, which are fabulous. And you know, so he's kind of the one that I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of see where he was coming out of that whole Hammer school and even, you know, some of those other movies. And this was kind of this very 70s <laughs> feeling uh, gothic, you know. Oh, yeah. Horror movie. So but it's weird because, uh, you know, so Hammer had kind of stopped making movies by the time this came out in 1978. Yeah. But so he wasn't making this movie for Hammer. Mm. But it does feel like a Hammer film. Yeah. It's got that vibe for sure. Yeah. And, you know, would you mind giving some explanation of what Hammer Films is Absolutely. to some folks out there? Yeah. They, they were a British film studio. I don't know exactly when they started, probably in the 40s. But the, the, the 50s is when... The late 50s is when they really came into prominence with horror films, very lush, gothic horror films. And the women of Hammer became very famous. I actually have a book, this beautiful, like, coffee table book of, like, all the sexy women of Hammer, especially (laughs) Ingrid Pitt, who's, like, the goddess to me. Um, But they did all of those Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee famous uh, variations on Dracula, on Frankenstein, on Mm -hmm. The Mummy. And then they also had some offshoots like the Karnstein trilogy, which I can't remember the third one, which is funny, because The Vampire Lovers is one of my favorites of all time, as I mentioned, and The Twins of Evil. And then there's a third one. 
one. I can't remember. Oh, God. That's I, right. I'm drawing a blank, too. Let me tell you, I that's kind of the level of trivia I expect myself to know. And I will, you know, just beat myself up mercilessly yeah, for she being will. a she shitty, a shitty horror geek. I can swear on this podcast, right? You can. Okay. Yeah. I'll try not to go Our producer crazy. just gave us two thumbs up to that. Yes, you can. <laughs> Thanks, Casey. Awesome. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, like, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Jimmy Sangster and, um, yeah. and this gothic feel in this film, because by this time, I mean, Hammer wasn't necessarily making movies. Uh, they made a few around that time, but they stopped because there wasn't necessarily an audience for the gothic yeah. at that time. Um, but this one seems to marry kind of gothic with like a Rosemary's Baby kind of occultism. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it actually combined two things I was really drawn to as a kid in terms of horror was A, the gothic stuff of Hammer, and then the kind of satanic-y, witchcraft-y ritual, uh, which actually Hammer did some movies like that as well, like To the Devil a Daughter and, some, you know, quite a few others. But I always, you know, it's funny because I flirted off and on throughout my young life with Catholicism, which was the religion of my mom's side of the family. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, as we all. (laughs) And then on the other side, it was like witchcraft. And, and, you know, I never like planned to become a Satanist per se, but I, I think I was just really drawn into a high ritual, like high mass ceremony, Mm -hmm. all of that. And, you know, in the black mass, you have that, too. You know, the people in the robes and there's the pentagram and candles. But then there's also cool shit. Like maybe there's like a naked lady splayed out on the altar, you know, that like maybe sacrificed. I don't know, you know, what that says about me as a child. But, you know, but it's kind of just the flip of the Catholic mass. And so even though this doesn't go quite that far into like having a mass per se, but it does have that possibly sat- satanic witchcraft mm-hmm. element to it. So I, I, you know, I wonder, I think it was kind of brilliant actually for Singster to put um, a, you know, marry those two things because mm-hmm. occultism was like hot. Yeah. It was like, it like 80s occultism was just like, yes, it's everywhere. Yeah. And it seemed like maybe he was like, OK, I really want to do gothic shit, but I I need to figure out a way to bring this into this next you know decade. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, like as a writer, how much are you thinking about trends and what that means? I feel mm. like in some ways the, uh, you know, trends in genre cinema have kind of melted away you know things become perennial yeah you know at the same time you know like you do a lot of showgirls related things oh my god and showgirls (laughs) seems like something that could like everyone will always love i hope so we're counting on it with the documentary we're making but um yeah i'm obsessed with that movie But, but do you do you find that there are certain things that hit in certain times oh of course you know and i think in terms of trends i don't go into any projects thinking specifically, oh, am I going to do this because it's on trend? Mm-hmm. But I think that I'm just naturally influenced, maybe in a sense, by what's going on around me. What am I picking up on? You know, and it just happens to be right now, actually, that girl power, woman power, um, you know, and then Mary, you know, horror is just a perennial, you know, in my life, like it's always been there. It's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it kind of happens right now that this is a great moment for the marriage of the two. 
So, you know, because with Chastity Bites, the movie I wrote and produced, that I was influenced by (laughs) the old and the new. So the old was my obsession with Elizabeth Bathory, the blood countess, who Mm -hmm. was one of the most notorious serial killers in history. There have been some great movies made you know, loosely based on her legend, like Daughters of the Darkness, Countess Dracula, even The Hunger has, a you know, a feeling of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was influenced by what was going on politically when I wrote it. And when I first, even though it took, it was a 10-year journey between the first draft of that movie and release. So... In 2004, when I wrote it, that was when it was George W. Bush. It was evangelical Christians, you know, coming into the mainstream. It was abstinence-only education. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, click in my brain, oh, Elizabeth Bathory bathes in virgin blood. The Republicans are trying to keep all these girls virgins. Huh, what if I brought Elizabeth Bathory over to the United States, had her set up abstinence-only education programs to get her virgin blood? (laughs) Mom, how could you do this to me? This is so fucking ghetto. Sorry, dear, but this is the only way. Look at how young and beautiful I am. No man will ever leave me again. We need your virgin blood. Wow, so that's why you had me leave that stupid club? I'm going to die a virgin because of your bullshit midlife crisis. And then (laughs) also flip the expectation of the virgin living, where actually if you're a virgin, you're kind of in trouble in Mm -hmm. that one. You know, and so, like, spoiler alert for my movie, like, the heroine has sex with a guy she likes, you know, and who's cool. Yeah. But has sex to basically take herself out of the running to be, you know, fodder for this woman's eternal evil existence. Yeah. 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 You know, I I love the, um, I mean... I very much enjoy uh, playing with the idea of a woman's purity in Uh in horror films, you know, especially if you can turn it on its end. Here, I would say in the legacy, that's she's she takes on almost like male characteristics, Uh I think. Absolutely. Well, and she takes over at the end, you know, again, spoilers. But at the very end, what happens is that, you know, everyone else has been eliminated from becoming the heir or heiress to Jason Mount Olive's fortune. And what his fortune is, is not just a fortune, but somehow being part of this cabal of people who control the world. That's kind of what they say, you know, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Like he's, you know, among these people who are the decision makers at the political global level. And so at the end, that legacy is passed on to her. He puts a ring on her finger that symbolizes that, that can't be taken off. But then she puts the ring on Sam Elliott's finger, mm-hmm. which I think is so interesting. And it's so, you know, because she has the power in the end. And she is saying, she's kind of almost taking on a male role there, too, where she is saying, yes, I wed thee to this power that I've just come into mm-hmm. and in, without really even asking him, you know, like, <laughs> she just kind of does it. I And I actually, I want to talk a little bit more about Catherine Ross and, oh, yes. and that character, but we're <laughs> going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. I'm 
Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together, we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like, Why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about butts. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager. And, and I, I was two. Butts, 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 butts. No. <laughs> Okay, welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I am joined here today by Lottie Ferris Knowles. Howdy. And we are talking about the 1978 film The Legacy. The Legacy. The Legacy. <laughs> um, and you know, we're we're getting into this whole thing of uh, Catherine Ross, um, who stars in this film. And what I found is that when this Blu-ray came out of The Legacy, a lot of reviewers actually um, put her as second build. Which I thought was, you know, I was going through it, you know, the past week I was doing some research and um, Sam Elliott, who, you know, went on to have a wonderful career and yeah. still works. Um, you know, he was he was top build and then she was second build and uh, as a supporting actor. Hashtag SMH. <laughs> Shaking my head. I mean, she, she is the lead. She's she very is. strong. And I would say that she is a little bit uh, higher than Sam Elliott, if not equal in this. They have a very oh, equal relationship, which is one of the things I loved about this film. And they're so hot together. Like, let's just say really quickly that they're both incredibly hot and yet real in that kind of 70s way. So their chemistry, I think they're still married, in fact. They are. They yeah. met on the set of this film. Which, uh, see, that is another thing that just kind of, you know, it adds to the fairy tale, the dark fairy tale magic of it. But it's just, you know, but they are, that. I, I think I was really drawn to that, too, that she had this great relationship with him. He was very masculine and hot. But she... She wasn't needy of him. Yes, there's time she turns to him and needs him in the film, but there's time he turns to her and she's acting of her own volition and she's making these decisions. She gets this letter. She's like, yeah, we're going. This is an adventure. And then she's leading, you know, going down this path, you know, where it's taking her. And so... Yeah, I just think she I wish she had had done more later. I wish we could see her more now. But one of the things that I love about also I have to say that her character is an architect and I think yeah. that, that um um I think that, that writer's choice to make her an architect, which is a traditionally kind of masculine role in mm -hmm. film, you know, it's a generic like, oh, he's an architect. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but the fact that she is an architect, mm -hmm. I, I thought was really wonderful. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I love about Catherine Ross, like the more that I had researched there is, is it she had been offered so many roles and she turned them all down. She got um, an Oscar nomination for her role in The Graduate mm -hmm. uh, in The Graduate um, in uh, the 1960s, 69, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that was also like the year when she was dropped by Universal because she refused to play a stewardess in Airplane. Oh, my God. She refused to play <laughs> so many roles because she was like, I don't like it. I don't want it. And yeah. then that same year, she was quoted as saying, I'm not a movie star. That system is dying. And I'd like to help it along. Good for her. Um, I never heard that quote. That's great. And she's wonder. Also, she had a cat named something. <laughs> 
I love that she's a cat because we have to get to the cat thing, the, the dark fairy godmother at some point, that, as I like to call her in um, The Legacy, the woman who turns into the cat. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. I mean, Catherine Ross, um, her performance in this is uh, – she's she's so good. Yeah. I, it's, how do I even classify it? She's um, She does have a strength about her, the way that she holds her shoulders and yeah. herself when she moves through this house. She doesn't feel small in this no. house. She and, feels like she takes up the space in this huge old gothic And mansion. she dresses like in very sensible kind of like – you know, blouse and pants. Like, you know, she's, I don't remember her much except at the end, maybe in a dress. Like she's often in, you know, kind of almost masculine, mm-hmm. comfortable power wear. And I I honestly, I would love to know because uh, I don't think the Blu-ray, they have an, a, an interview with the editor, I think. Yeah. And the, um, what's her name? Yeah, but I would love to hear, you know, it's too bad Jimmy Sangster has left us. I don't know if Mark Hand is still around or if he he passed. He died when he was 48. He he died very early. Poor guy. Yeah, he didn't get to make many movies after Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Well, a a short but wonderful career. But, you know, I would love to find out. Was there any intention? You know, the woman's movement was going on at the time, the ERA movement. I still have mm-hmm. an original ERA, yes, button from the 70s. It was my mom's. And, you know, I wonder how much of it was intentional, what I intuited as a kid and latched on to. Or was it, did it just kind of happen by accident? You know, it doesn't seem like it's possible, but sometimes, you know, those things do kind of, you know, manifest in a way that wasn't intended. I mean, do you do you have things that you've written before where something becomes more feminist than what you had even thought? Like it was just on the page? <laughs> um, I mean, it depends, you know. I, or more political or? I, you know, everything I do as a writer, and I haven't, I have to say, I focused a lot more on producing. I wish I was more prolific as a writer, and I'm trying to get better about that. Mm -hmm. But whenever I have written, I cannot help but have some sort of angle of my politics that's in there. Now, Chastity Bites, it is so overt. Like, it, the feminism just slaps you across the face. This sure. face, pretty much. Like, sure. I can't, you know, like, I can't say that anybody could take, you know, that much further. There's other things sometimes people will tweet at me about that I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. But um, but I think, you know, with, with Chastity Bites, I try to do it in a comedic sense so that it softens the blow. So if I'm really going for that hardcore, then I try to find a way to still wrap it in a confection of entertainment mm-hmm. so it goes down easy. And then maybe when it's in your tummy, you're like, oh, wait. That was that was so you know yummy, but there's something in there now that <laughs> like these seeds of ideas. So, um, but there's always a some sort of political angle because I think I just can't help myself unless I'm be writing something for hire, you know. And mm-hmm. then if I can work it in, I will. But you know, sometimes that's just not possible in those. Um, you mentioned um, Anvi Coates, the editor, and I wanted to to get back to the editor of this film because I I think that that's um, her involvement is kind of fascinating. She um, had always thought that she wanted to be a director, but yeah. she ended up editing 
um, which is actually how a lot of women ended up getting into editing because they weren't allowed to be directors. Absolutely. But if you've ever worked with a good editor, you know that very often they can't, they are the directors. Absolutely. Um, and um, it's one of the things where when she did Legacy, she had already done Lawrence of Arabia, for instance. Um, <laughs> but when I looked at her IMDb, I was really excited to see that she had also done Sidney Lumet's Murder on the Orient Express before this as well. Oh, that's so cool. Um, starring Albert Finney, one of the original ones in the 1970s. Um, and so to me, Legacy has this kind of Agatha Christie-ish feel with with occultism and with, you know, this gothic stuff that we're talking about before. There's a little bit slower pacing. Um, The characters all, they're all one-dimensional kind of caricatures whose sole purpose really is to kill or be killed (laughs) in in interesting ways. And um, so this does marry these, um, the American slasher style with a British mystery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think that Coates is one of the reasons for why that pacing is there. Oh, yeah. British slow pacing. Well, it's a whodunit, you know, in a way, because you don't know who's doing the killing per se until the end. And then you're like, oh, it's sort of like it's kind of a supernatural force in a way, but being channeled through this guy as he's sort of, you know, and it seems at the end like it's pretty much predestined. He knew who he wanted his successor to be, and that's why he brought her there. But um, but there is a little bit of a mystery element of who, you know, who who's doing the killing. Where is the next one going to come from? I told it's so funny. I didn't know that about Ann Coates. And that's so fast. I just rewatched the old murder on the Orient Express yeah. recently. And I can absolutely see that. And there's that expression, isn't it, that the, a movie is written three times, first by the writer, then the director, and then by the editor, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of phenomenal directors, actually, who've ended up um, as phenomenal editors, so did I say the phenomenal directors who ended up as phenomenal editors, and not just women, because at least that is a space if they haven't gotten the opportunity to be a director because it's so competitive. Mm-hmm. Where it seems like, on one hand, this craftsman-like skill that's in demand to be an editor, but to be a good one, you have to have the same skill storytelling skills as a writer and a director yeah. and a very strong vision. And so that component of a film is really, really important. Um, I want to go over, um, just return just a little bit to um, Sam Elliott and Catherine Ross. Mm-hmm. And what it must have been like to cast these two, because I think that Marcon got so I don't know if he got lucky or he's just really good at mm-hmm. it, finding um, actors who have this um, this rhythm and this charisma together. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it is a really beautiful thing to see on screen, this kind of equality that they have and yeah. this like romance. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, casting situations that you've been in. Like, how difficult is it to find people who have that kind of connection? You know, it depends. I think for Chastity Bites, the casting process was a dream. We had two fantastic casting directors. The main one was a a woman, uh, Monica Mickelson, and then also Matthew LaSalle. And we knew we were on a tight, tight budget. We didn't have money to pay actors for rehearsal, which is such a shame because one of the last, well, I think in the Heather Matarazzo podcast, you talked about the luxury of rehearsals, yeah. you know, like Karen, Karen Kusama did with The Invitation, yeah. which was my favorite film of last year. Um, <laughs> but um, 
we didn't have that luxury. So we really needed to knock it out of the park right away. Mm-hmm. We got lucky. I I knew the second I saw Allison Scully Odie on um, Warehouse 13 that she was my lead. And luckily I had a friend working at Sci-Fi who introduced her to the project. So she was loosely attached for a couple years before we got to the shooting place. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily was still available when shooting time came. And then everybody else... The casting directors were just smart. I, you know, we outlined exactly what we wanted and needed. They had ideas and they brought us great people. And we just were made really sure in that casting room and then, you know, doing some of the callbacks, reading people together, Mm -hmm. reading, you know, the two female best friend leads together, reading the female lead and her romantic interest together just to make sure, oh, yeah, this is good. There's they like each other. How how far can you push that? And, and, you know, like, would you ever make them, um, you know, ask them to kiss or embrace or like what, you know, how do you how do you find that? Yeah, I didn't. We I don't think we asked that of them in the callback. I think we because so much of, you know, with the relationship with um, the lead and the romantic interest was kind of the tension, the lead up. Mm-hmm. So we kind of wanted to see who had that cute, nervous energy together in the casting room. And then we figured that would lead to, you know, great kiss. Uh, and we were right, which was exciting. Um you know, it absolutely depends on what is the type of film you're casting, what's the most important thing. If I'm making like – I mean, I don't – what is Gaspar – how do you pronounce his last name? Is it Gaspar Noe? Yeah. Yeah. What is he – like on his – somebody who's making, you know, or Lars von Trier is making Nymphomaniac. Like what, what do you do? I, I would feel so awkward, honestly, and weird about asking for clothes off, like anything mm. beyond a kiss. But – I I don't I don't know I don't I mean I guess some actors are down for it. Yeah, I'll you, let you know if I ever make. <laughs> you you I think you just have to find the actors or like look, are you down for this? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of sex scenes. Yeah, because I'm a little, you know, like <laughs> about sex, you know, and so it just would feel so awkward oh, to yeah. me, <laughs> you know. And I know it gets really technical when you're actually making a film, but I've never done, a, you know, a movie where I had a sex scene and I. I could handle it, but it just, you know, I think I would be asking the actor, especially the female, over and over and over, like to the point of probably annoyance, like, you sure you're okay? You feel good? Mm-hmm. You have every, you know, what do you need? You know, just because I do respect that, you know, it's such a private thing. And for some people, it's not a private thing. You yeah. know, they're like, whatever, I'm good to go. But, you know, for me, it's so private and kind of like, hey, that. Yeah, I would be very, very conscious of, (laughs) is this okay? And yet, and this is the thing that I love about horror, though, and horror directors and horror writers, is just that, you know, sometimes nudity, but like, also like, Murder totally on the table. Oh, you yeah. know, like, and, uh, <laughs> what's your favorite death scene in this? It has to be the pool because that was the one when I was a kid that just stuck with me. And mm. um, I was lucky enough to grow up with a swimming pool in the backyard. It's California. And I was constantly I loved swimming but I was constantly afraid after that diving into the pool if I went under the water that I was going to come up and there was going to be glass covering the pool all of a sudden Mm -hmm. and then I would drown like this Olympic Russian swimmer or whatever she is yeah um so I had to make sure if I was going to dive under the water I had to have at least one other person like watching to make sure that 
<laughs> some that, you know, supernatural force didn't cover my. And we made such a great prank to like do what they did on set and put a piece of plexiglass over where were you where you were going to be. Yeah, yeah. And then just watch you struggle. Yeah. But it's a, a rather gruesome death, you know, it's to be under the water, but pounding on this glass, like let, trying to, you know, mm-hmm. let me out. And you can see the figure of Jason Mount Olive, but very like wavy through the water. And then finally, you know, she just sinks. And it's just, ugh, you know, like no drowning is it's funny because, I mean, there aren't a lot of good deaths to think about having but drowning and i've heard that it's not the worst but i mean not that i know anyone who died from that exactly uh, i'm speaking to from beyond the grave but it's something there's something very upsetting i think to most people to think about drowning Mm -hmm. and that scene is just really like i don't know just made a big impression on me but i also think it's quite funny when roger daltrey chokes on a chicken bone and they're like but there was only ham that was served. And what about Clive? You served him at dinner. Do you remember what he ate? Ham. Hmm. And some pate. No chicken? No. You choked on a chicken bone. No. It's like God, it's yeah, a that's cheesy the, the, Oh my god. That's the yeah, that's the twist is like, oh, but it was only ham. Yeah, exactly. How where? could he have choked on ham? Exactly. But where would the chicken bone have come from, you know? And Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. like Roger Daltrey, he's, he's choking on this chicken bone, supposedly. Yeah. And then they, you know, the the uh, housekeeper mm-hmm. slash cat yeah. has, to, has to perform an emergency tracheotomy. On a on the dinner table, yeah, but it is messy. Yes, and this is where we're going to take another break because I want to, I do want to get into some of the makeup here. Okay. I want to talk about makeup and cats when we come back. Okay, <laughs> we'll be right back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. Hey, Helen Hong. Yes, J. Keith Van Stratton. What's the difference between a layover and a stopover? I have no idea. What's the difference between optimal and optimum? I have no idea. What's the difference between an actual conversation and a promo for our new show on Maximum Fun, Go Fact Yourself? Nobody has any idea. Go Fact Yourself, the game show with celebrity contestants, super smart experts, and answers to questions you've never even asked. Listen twice a month on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And be in the audience for our tapings of Go Fact Yourself in downtown L.A. It's free. Go to GoFactYourPod.com for more info. We're having a very realistic conversation. Yes, we are. And welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Lottie Ferris-Knowles. And we are talking about... The legacy. The legacy. Okay. Um, I would love to get into some of the makeup because I loved Roger Daltrey bleeding all over the table. Oh, yeah. And um, I know that Robin uh, Robin Grantham was the makeup artist on this picture, and I'm pretty sure that he did some of that wonderful blood. And he also went on to work on uh, An American Werewolf in London, which mm-hmm. had a an amazing special effects team. I love that movie. That's um, another favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And so you can see these kinds of glimmers there and mm-hmm. like in, in what he was doing. Um, and I do think that um, 
makeup in these things is kind of an afterthought for a lot of folks, mm-hmm. um, a lot of directors and producers. How how quickly, how early in the process are you thinking about makeup and special effects? Well, now, you know, Chastity Bites, everything was moving so fast and it's such a low budget and we didn't think enough about it. It ended up being okay in the end because we did get some a couple great people who were able to execute. But now it's kind of the first thing I think about if there's some sort of special gore effects involved. And I love me some gore. I can absolutely, like I said, I can get down with something like The Changeling, which has almost no gore. But I also, you know, love to see cool stuff. Um so now I feel like murders by cool stuff is I want to clarify because <laughs> cool stuff could mean like a lot of things. But we're talking about gruesome word murders. I, yeah, I was but hoping. I like how you just try to try to get around that. Yeah, sorry. Not but, gruesome you know, murders. But okay. it's fake, man. It's fake. And it's just cool to see what, you know, they can do. It's an art. It's an art. We've got to return to our conversation about cats. I know we've been holding off and I know everyone's waiting for us to talk about cats and movies. They, if they're like me, they are actually because I, I am. am a crazy cat lady. No, you picked this movie and I saw the cover and there's a white cat with like claws coming out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm probably going to like this. Um, <laughs> you know, I love how Sue. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Another I fantastic. Uh, all of you guys listen out there. Check out that. If you love oh, yeah. cats and movies, especially horror films. Yeah. And weird Japanese horror. You know, it's Japanese, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. my God. Amazing. Um, so this cat um, is is also kind of a shape-shifting woman yeah. in a way. In fact, I, you know, it's, her power is never explained, <clears throat> but I get the feeling that she's probably more like a human witch with shape-shifting powers. And the cat is sort of, even though it's funny because it's a white cat instead of a black cat, it's almost still like that is her familiar slash, you know, the way she Mm shape-shifts to spy on things. I think of her, so I kind of think of this movie as like the twisted version of Cinderella. So we have, you know, it's it's we can't be too literal with it, but Catherine Ross is Cinderella. You know, she's brought to the palace for the devil Cinderella. Yeah, yeah. exactly. She's brought to the palace, you know, but she because she in a way becomes the prince and Sam Ross is sort of her princess that she chooses. I mean, it's a little okay. Maybe I'm going too far out there, but let me just say that that weird nurse housekeeper, and I love that she kind of wears like a nun's habit, yeah. Too like, is she a nun? If she is, why is she working for this guy who maybe the devil? Mm-hmm. Why can she turn into a cat? It doesn't matter. It's just cool. But so, you know, so she's kind of like the twisted fairy godmother, and she's not sure. You know, there's kind of this testing of Catherine Ross that's going on, too, you know, where there's sort of that hero's journey of she has to go through these tests to see, like, is she worthy? But then mm-hmm. in the end, she's welcomed in and given the keys to the castle. But, you know, as a lifelong, I mean, I love animals in general, but I'm especially, like I said, crazy cat lady. I loved that she could turn into a cat. Well, and... I love the the integration of uh, sound and costume when it comes to this cat, because if you look at her costume, I mean, 
mean, she's in white and she's got that kind of elevated veil. Yeah. But it's got two points on it. Yeah. So it does, it almost looks like there are kind of cat ears underneath yes. this veil. And then there's also, um, if you notice in the sound design, there's a purring that happens underneath her voice. Mm-hmm. And so they've got this kind of low-grade purring happening. <laughs> and then it gets higher and it gets kind of like screechy towards the end when she's in a fight. Yeah. Um, and the sound design, and in fact, the sound design in this film is actually really quite good. Yeah. Even in the beginning when um, Catherine Ross's character, Maggie, is trying to convince uh, Pete that uh, they need to go to England, there's a sound of a, like, low in the mix of an airplane taking off. Mm. And so you already know that they're going to go. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just kind of put in. Yeah. And, and then it kind of goes away. But it, it's, it's really fascinating how they constructed that sound design to give you these cues. Yeah. Um, See, I love that now you're cueing me to listen and watch for new things, too, even though I've seen this movie a lot. You know, I hadn't really thought about that so much. I mean, I I thought about this, like the screeching when she's fighting and getting very cat-like. But some of this stuff now I'm like, oh, now I'm going to look out for that next time because I hadn't thought of it before. How many times have you seen this? God, I don't know. 20. A lot. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) A lot. Yeah. (laughs) Probably more than 20. I don't know. It's like one of those movies I kind of lose track over the years, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to say one thing, too, and hope hopefully no one, no one out there is going to steal this idea. But I have had a long-term dream of remaking The Legacy because unlike remaking movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, which are so iconic and so well-known still, I feel like a movie like this – you know, if a remake would actually help people discover the original, but it's not, you know, necessarily something well known. And I, I, I just have ideas about how to update it for today's society. Mm-hmm. Things about separation of, um, what am I trying to say? Like the, you know, divisions of wealth, mm-hmm. um, toppling the patriarchy. <laughs> Etc. Yeah, making it more overt. A little yeah. bit, yeah. But you know, I but it's still keeping some of the cool death scenes and that kind of thing. So maybe someday in the future you'll see a Lottie first Knowles version of the legacy. It's it's just one of those dreams. I'm just keeping close to my heart, and we'll see if life ever allows that to become reality. Ah, okay, all you listeners out there, don't steal Lottie's idea. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening today. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for coming on, Lottie. Thank you so much, April. This was fun, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Well, thanks so much for listening. Next week, we'll be talking to writer and director Mariana Polka about the often-overlooked Star Trek generations. Um, aside from writing and directing, Mariana is also on Netflix's Glow as Vicky the Viking, so please check that out as well. Um, and I want to give a big thank you to everyone who has been leaving us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. If you leave us one, we'll read it on the show. Here's a few from the past week. This one is a a nameless person who is all emojis, stars, rabbits, and stars. So stars, rabbits, and stars says, this is one of those podcasts you sit in the car to finish. I've been late to work walking around the block for another five minutes so I can hear the person speaking finish her thoughts. Just send me a message, uh, tweet me, and I will give you a little note for, for your boss. 
uh, stars, rabbit stars. And then we've got Shoshana Maran, um, who says these directors she interviews are just such interesting people. I agree. Um, and then she goes on to say, I love this podcast. I'll never watch movies the same. Thank God. Let's watch them all differently, but together. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at Switchblade Pod or email us at Switchblade Sisters at MaximumFun.org. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. This is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.